One of the most uh, contentious doctrines in the church might surprise you a little bit, but it's actually the virgin birth of Christ. And you might be thinking, who on earth would want to call themselves a Christian and then deny something so central to the faith? And I would just as flabbergasted as you. I have no idea why someone would claim to be a Christian and not believe this stuff. But you may be shocked by these statistics, but in the US, in a 1998 study, uh, 34% of Baptist pastors don't believe in the virgin birth. Gets worse if you're a Presbyterian, 49% of them do not believe in the virgin birth. And you want to hope you're not a Methodist because 60% of Methodist pastors do not believe in the virgin birth. And I'm just thinking, why bother being a minister or a pastor if you're not going to believe something so central? But this is a new. Denials of miracles in the Bible has been popularized since the 18th century. What's unexpected is how popular this has become in mainline denominations. Now, this is in the US that I quoted, but this is still rampant amongst high Anglican churches, some uniting churches, and even some Presbyterian churches. For Bible-believing Christians, it's really simple. The virgin birth of Christ is not up for debate. Either it's true and Christianity is true, or it's false and Christianity is false. There is no middle ground. There's those only two conclusions that we can come to. Jesus being born of a virgin has its origins right at the beginning of Genesis and is so foundational to Christian theology that taking it out means that Jesus is not our Messiah. Taking it out means that we are still in our sins. And the only thing left for us is a terrifying expectation of judgment. Without the virgin birth, we are without hope. The old order has not passed away and Jesus remained in the tomb. What we'll discover today is that the old order has indeed passed away, and that Jesus did not remain in that tomb, but rose again from the dead, and he brought many sons to glory. So we're going to be looking at, first, kind of what is to come, second, how that played itself out in history, and then third, we're going to be looking at why it's so foundational and essential to everything that Christianity teaches. And so here's my three points. Number one, the hope of the virgin birth. My second point, the fulfillment of the virgin birth. And my third point, the necessity of the virgin birth. So Isaiah 7, I hope you have that open in front of you. We're going to be reading from verses 13 to 17. My first point, the hope of the virgin birth. And he said, He then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you also weary my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria." fascinating passage we have here today. I won't have time to kind of nut it all out and bring out all of the different elements of it, Uh, but Isaiah is a book of prophecy against a rebellious and wayward people. These people had forsaken covenantal relationship with God, they've chased after other gods, they've worshipped other gods, and when humans chase after idols, the result is always catastrophic, it is always disastrous, and it always leads to atrocities. Horrible acts of oppression, violence, and injustice. 
And what we see in Israel is a complete rejection of God. This nation that God had set up to be a light to the nations has itself become just like every other country around them. And who was ultimately responsible to steer the nation into righteousness? God had appointed the Davidic kingship, right? The Davidic kings. They were supposed to lead the nation into righteousness. And instead, they did the complete opposite. And it wasn't the case in the household of David. More often than not, the sons of David who sat on the throne, it says all throughout the book of Kings, did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not punish evil. And they often punished good and rewarded evil. And God was tired of them, we see here. He's weary. He's fatigued by them. And he accuses the house of David for wearying God. And they'd failed again and again and again. In Isaiah 7, just before we see the king Ahaz. Fascinating guy, Ahaz. As far as this guy goes, he's probably one of the worst kings around. In 2 Chronicles 28.3, he offers multiple of his sons up to the god Molech, burning them with fire. It was a pretty brutal way to die. They had this enormous statue of Molech and they burned his enormous hands up with a flame until it was boiling hot and the offering of the child would get placed in those hands. And this is King Ahaz doing that to his own children. Okay, well, we've got a baby killer, so we're not off to a good start, are we? He made all sorts of sacrifices and offerings to foreign gods, and not surprisingly, it's probably a little bit of an understatement, God is tired of them. He's tired of these kings, and he's going to do something new. He's going to give a sign to this house, the house of David. The virgin was going to conceive and give birth. A new kind of king would be born. This king was going to be unlike Ahaz, who, let's face it, is the worst kind of person humanity can produce. This king, this king that will come, will know how to refuse evil and choose good. And this is very interesting because a woman would fall pregnant and bear a king in the line of David. The first question that most people would have when they read this is, how on earth can a virgin fall pregnant? And even if the virgin did fall pregnant, how on earth could that child be said to be in the line of David? Because if there's no man involved, then how are they a descendant of David? This is an enormous sign. This is an impossible sign. Zion is not doing himself any favors. The sign that God would give simply cannot be. You only have to attend, you know, attend certain uh, PE classes when you guys went through school to know that this kind of stuff is impossible. The virgin cannot fall pregnant. They'd be scratching their heads. Here's our dilemma. We have a morally perfect king, right? That's said to come. A morally perfect king who would refuse evil and choose good. And how does that even happen? Humans are sinful. We are broken. And number two, he's going to be born to a virgin. Even another impossibility. And somehow in the house of David, even though only the woman was involved. This is all impossible. This simply cannot happen. But God has something to say about this. Luke 137, nothing will be impossible with God. Leads me to my second point, the fulfillment of the virgin birth. So we're going to turn real quick to Matthew 1, 18 and 25. We're going to see how this passage is fulfilled. And Matthew has some very interesting language for us. 
Matthew 1, 18 and 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here's an amazing story of the virgin birth of Christ. And a lot has happened in the meantime between Isaiah and this passage. The line of kings, King Ahaz, all his lineage collapsed. They were defeated, they were subjugated by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were then defeated and subjugated by the Persians, who were then defeated and subjugated by the Greeks, who then were defeated and subjugated by the Romans. And here we are right now. This is a long line of oppression and servitude, and the people were eagerly waiting for a king to come. They were awaiting for their Messiah. And into this chaotic, dangerous, unjust world, God singles out this poor young couple betrothed for marriage. We see Joseph and Mary. Now, Joseph was a carpenter by trade. You guys may know this. He was living in the region of Galilee, which is kind of this backwater, poor, crummy area in the Roman province of Palestine. We also learn that he is a descendant of David, for he is called as much by the angel. The angel calls him the son of David. He finds out, much to his dismay, that this good-natured, godly young woman that he's been betrothed to is pregnant. He knows immediately that the child is not his, and that Mary has been unfaithful to him. And I'm sure he felt betrayed, humiliated, angry, but the text we see here calls him a just man. He is able to rule his emotions, and he decides to break off the engagement quietly. Now, Joseph has the same reaction as anyone else who reads this passage for the first time. Women don't just fall pregnant. I mean, today, with extensive medical intervention, yeah, maybe they can fall pregnant, but as a general rule, during this time, there was only one way for a woman to fall pregnant, and yet God has a plan. He sends his angel to Joseph to tell him that his wife is telling him the truth, or his fiance, I should say, is telling him the truth. The Holy Spirit has supernaturally created life in the womb of Mary, but not through normal means, but is a miracle. Supernatural. Many people get uncomfortable at the supernatural events in the Bible. They get uncomfortable at the word miracle. But the God who created galaxies and stars and caused the sea to part and walls to fall creates this small baby in Mary's womb. For some reason, we get all caught up on this one miracle when the Bible is replete with all sorts of miracles. It is full of the supernatural. If you can't, if you're not happy with the supernatural in one point, then it makes no sense for you to be happy with the supernatural in any point, even God being the creator of the universe and creating the universe by supernatural means. For Christians, this shouldn't cause us a lack of comfort. This shouldn't cause us any issues. 
But listen to the language in Luke 1.34-35, to the same, the tale. It says, uh, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Fascinating language in, in Luke 1 right here. You can get whispers and glimpses of the same language in Genesis 1, don't you? When the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And Luke is telling us this. In this new baby is not merely a miraculous birth, but a new creation. In the womb of Mary, being fed and nourished by her body, is a new human. God's eternal Son, Emmanuel, God with us. This is so important because Jesus is not born of Adam. He does not carry the taint of Adam. He does not bear the curse of Adam. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. We just sung it in that last song. A new man because the first had rebelled and gone astray. Jesus took on the nature of man, being a true offspring of David, taking on all our humanness, all our humanity, except for one thing, our sin. He did not take on our sin. Isaiah says it perfectly. He says this new man that will be created, this new creation, would know to reject evil and choose good and to usher in a new world and new community and new way of being. Not even King David, who he's a descendant of, for all his goodness, was free from sin. In fact, listen to something that King David says about himself, Psalm 22:6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And yet God used men like David to bring about his salvation. And God uses women like Mary to bring about salvation and men like Joseph. The story of the virgin birth shows us that God's kingdom flourishes in dark places. It first came to these dirty, kind of dark places in Galilee being witnessed by none other than shepherds. If you know anything about shepherds at the time, they were very low on the social ladder And there, in this stable, born to a teenage girl of roughly 14 or 15, is the saviour of the world. And the story seems backwards. It doesn't really make much sense. We would expect this long-awaited Messiah, born into the kingly line, to be brought into the world with pomp and ceremony and celebration, and yet almost no one knows that God has just entered into the world. It didn't come with fanfare, it didn't come with necessarily choirs of angels, it didn't come with great, huge, enormous uh, signs so that everyone would possibly know God has chosen the small and the unremarkable. There were plenty of candidates in the aristocracy and social elite, and yet he chooses this young teenage couple. It's remarkable. God is so different to us, and he operates on such a different timeline and in such different ways because in the incarnation of Jesus all our categories all our assumptions all our presuppositions are being demolished they're being challenged and in this new creation what we see is the world turning upside down the old order being replaced and a new order entering into the world at least my third point the necessity of the virgin birth If this story is not true, then we are in big trouble. The virgin birth is not a cute story. It's not a poor young girl's failed excuses. 
It has been prophesied since the beginning of time. When sin entered into our world in the garden, it first appeared in the great dragon Satan, that wily serpent. And it appeared as if he had won. Sin had entered in, the human race was plunged into sin, we were plunged into rebellion, and we were basically recruited by him and joined him. This is a big victory because now Satan would have bearers of God's image going out and carrying out his deeds, his works. We, who were supposed to go out all around the world and bring God's dominion, were going to be carrying Satan's instead. And it seemed as if he'd won. It seemed as if the serpent had defeated God. Wherever these little image bearers went, instead of bringing God's rule and reign, they brought corruption. Satan had accomplished what he intended to do, and it was impossible for humans to go back. Impossible. So total was his victory. But God brought a curse down upon the serpent. You remember that curse, don't you? Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, And you shall bruise his heel. The the method from which Satan decided to corrupt the entire human race, going after Eve, tricking her into eating of the fruit, was the method that God was going to use to save the human race. From Eve would come the serpent crusher. He will bruise his head, crush his head, defeat him, and defeat his victory. And this is so important because the offspring that will come is not Adam's. It will not be Adam's. All throughout the Bible, the man is considered to have the offspring. Man is considered to have the seed. And yet here, the woman is the one that has the seed, the offspring. Male descendants of Adam would take no part in this offspring, it would come from the woman. And there are Christians out there who think it's clever or maybe edgy to deny the virgin birth of Christ. But they really need to repent, and repent immediately. Because without the virgin birth, there is no second Adam. Without the second Adam, there is no new creation. There is no second Adam, then there is no sinless Messiah. We are still in our sins, and Satan still has won. His defeat is still total. We are still without hope. Christianity simply makes no sense if you do not believe in this foundational doctrine. It's not simply what happened, it needed to happen this way. It had to happen this way. It was necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin, not merely because it was prophesied, but he needed to be human and sinless. He needed to be one of us without bearing the curse of sin. Jesus was born of a woman just like every single one of us, no one here is in this room that was not born of a woman, and yet all of us carry the taint of Adam, the original sin of Adam, and as such we bear the curse of sin. But Jesus was not born into the curse of Adam. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Satan felt like he had won, and in killing Jesus, he also felt like he had won, but he didn't count for what God was about to do. When Jesus entered the world through the Virgin Mary, he entered into his creation, he entered into flesh and blood, 
to save and destroy, to save humanity and destroy the devil. And the power of death has been broken forever for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Pay close attention to the language of Romans 5.17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that one man being Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let's just pause for a second. God loves you this much that He gave His one and only Son for you. You didn't deserve it. He could have swept you to the side. He could have thrown you to the same destruction that He had planned for the devil. And He would have been totally just. He would have been totally right and pure for doing so. But He loved you. He called you. He predestined you before the foundation of the world. Because He chose to come, to enter into our sin and filth, to become vulnerable, to become killable, to represent us and redeem us. He took the punishment we deserve so that we could have eternal life. He righted all wrongs, wipes away all tears, comforts all loss, and restores all damage. When you look at this baby in a manger, You were looking at a powerful statement of how far God went for you. This is how committed He is to you. God did not pay this terrible price to have His investment return void. He will save both now and forevermore. Those in Jesus are totally safe. And what does He want in return? When we look at that baby in a manger, what does God want in return for this wonderful gift? Faith. Faith alone is what He wants. The Father wants our faith to be in Him and His Son Jesus, to trust in Him as the Savior of the world. We celebrate on Christmas the arrival of a new creation, the new Adam, the new representative, the new humanity. The baby born to the Virgin Mary is calling everywhere to come and be a part of this kingdom, to repent and put their faith in Him And when they do that, they form a new people, forged in the blood of the second Adam. We call that people the church, the congregation of the saints, those who believe and trust all around the world, who truly belong to Jesus. So for those here that are not sure whether they believe, the message of Christmas is calling you to lay aside the world and its corruption and decay and to become part of this new kingdom. Entry is simple to this kingdom. Believe in Jesus. Turn from sin and trust in Him for your salvation. There is nothing else. Salvation is freely offered to all who accept it. And for those of us, who I assume is all of us here, those that claim the name of Christ, Christmas is not only a reminder of your salvation, but a call. A call to accept this new Adam... Not only is your saviour, but your master. He is the king of the new creation and he calls you to live into the life that he has won for you. That he entered into this world to win for you. That he lived for you. He calls us to be like him. 
to conform our lives into his image and to follow the pattern of the new humanity and lay aside the ways of the old. So this Christmas, as we begin this Christmas series through Isaiah, renew your commitment to the new humanity. Renew your commitment to strive to live within the new humanity as dearly beloved children of our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful message, the virgin birth, your son Jesus born into this world as a human born from a mother, but Lord without sin. Father, we thank you that he lived this sinless life so that we would be sinless too. That he loved us even though we were unlovely. That he died for us even though we were enemies of him. And Father, I pray that we would have a renewed sense of wonder and awe at the story of the virgin birth, knowing that it was prophesied long ago in Genesis 3 and again in Isaiah 7. And Lord, we know that it has happened like this. And in your mercy and wisdom and infinite grace, Lord, you defeated the works of the devil and set us free from death. We thank you, Lord, that we know we will rise again. We thank you that you have given us a part in this new kingdom that you have created. We love you, Lord. We pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.